0: funny how that kind of happens everybody starts getting quiet, like, like you got in trouble or something hello everyone good morning to you good morning. it's good to be together again happy mother's day as kevin said earlier what's my yearly joke if it wasn't for you mothers none of us would be here you know, but it's not a very good joke thank you though for humoring me let's pray please father we do ask for uh insight into your word and into your heart this morning. And Father, that you would bless your word as we sit under it today, whether we're in this room or we're watching uh, from afar, Lord, that uh, your word would minister and bring life as you promised to do. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in uh, Acts chapter 21, so you can go ahead and start turning there to Acts chapter 21. I'll remind you as you are making your way there that uh, in this place in Acts chapter 21, the Apostle Paul has just arrived back in uh, the city of Jerusalem. Uh, There's been a few instances in our study of the book uh, of Acts where Paul, kind of in between missionary journeys, makes his way to to the city of Jerusalem. He kind of connects with the church that is there, uh, and he has done that again. His third missionary journey has come to a close that journey, which was kind of primarily centered around the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor, not too far um, from the area today we know as Europe. Uh, and he's made his way back now to Jerusalem. And he's really wanted to get to the city of Jerusalem. We saw that because he wanted to be there by some of the festivals and, and some of the, by the time of the festivals and some of those other things. And as Paul was making his way back to Jerusalem, we learned everywhere he went, he stopped, he found believers, he fellowshiped with them, he no doubt taught them some things, encouraged them, was encouraged by them. We spent our time considering that uh, as well. And here he is now uh, in Jerusalem. And we read in Acts chapter 21, verse 19, that one of the first things he's going to do is give a report. It says there, now after greeting them, the church, he re- he uh, one by one recalled the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. A, a classic mission report. This is what happened. This is what went down as he related them uh, to them these things. Now, I pointed out that that caused the people to rejoice, as it would cause you to rejoice, no doubt. Seeing what God is doing, hearing what God is doing, you're excited about that. Maybe you supported that work in some way, at the very least in prayer. And now you're hearing, wow, God did an amazing things. God, you're so good. And so that's occurring. But look what verse 20 says of chapter 21. And when they heard these things, they glorified God. Again, I think that's very, very significant. Because there's a way that we can present our mission reports so that people would glorify us. And Paul whether he was careful to do this or it was just the attitude of his heart, he presents it in such a way that the people leave glorifying God, not Paul. Well, verse 20 continues on, and it says, Now they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. Put that in another, like an easier way. There are many Christians of Jewish background. That's what he's saying. How many thousands there are among the Jews Of those who have believed they are all zealous for the law and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs and so Paul wants to go to uh, meet with James or James says Paul why don't you come and talk to us because James wants to hear what Paul has to say about the trip how did things go At the same time, James wants to speak to Paul, too, and he wants to tell Paul some things that are going on and some concerns that have had. I've summarized it this way. Paul, he says, I'm glad you're here because I wanted to make you aware of some things that are being said about you here in Jerusalem and the potential problems that they might cause. More specifically, verse 20 says, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews. Uh, who have believed, and you know that those folks, though they're Christians, they're still pretty zealous about their Judaism, and they're still pretty zealous about the law of Moses. Okay, so it is what it is. No, here's the rub, James says. Word on the street is that you've been traveling around the world teaching the Jews that live in, in those Gentile locations that they can forsake the law of Moses altogether, or that they should forsake the law of Moses altogether, particularly as it relates to, he says here, circumcising their children or keeping the various customs of the Jews. That's his point. Paul, it's it's very possible you're going to have a problem here in Jerusalem because you know there are many thousands of people here that are Christians, but they're of Jewish background and they still practice the Jewish customs. And word on the street is, is that you have abandoned them altogether and you're telling people to abandon them altogether. Verse 22, he says, what then is to be done? Well, they're certainly going to hear that you have come. He says to him, don't worry, I got a plan. And here's the plan. Here's what we need to do. That starts in verse 23. Do therefore what we tell you. Whenever a sentence starts that way, you got to be a little nervous. He says, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all we know that there, thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If verse 25 sounds familiar, that's because we considered that in Acts chapter 15. That was what was called the Jerusalem Council. You know, how Jewish does a Gentile person need to be in order to be a Christian? That was all decided in chapter 15. And their decision is summarized there in verse 25. But here, we have Paul and, all right, what's your view of Judaism? You're a Christian, what can a, how Jewish can a Christian be? Now, it is true that Paul taught that the Jewish law was unnecessary for the Gentile Christian. But he never sought to draw the Jewish Christian away from the Jewish customs. And so if the Jewish Christian wanted to continue to practice their Jewish customs, according to Paul, they could do so. Just as long, very important, just as long as they recognized that those customs didn't make them any more righteous than the person who didn't follow those customs. And so if they understood that, then Paul was okay with it. So Paul wasn't going around telling people that they had to stop being Jewish. In fact, Back in chapter 18, we saw that Paul, he himself took a vow according to the customs of Judaism. We speculate that that was a Nazarite vow that Paul took. And that involved him consecrating himself. So, Acts 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer. Then he took leave of them. He said, sail for Syria with some others at Senechary. He had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. He was under a Jewish vow. In Acts chapter 20, We saw his decision to skip going to Ephesus because he knew that if he went to Ephesus, he would stay there too long, but what he really wanted to do was get to Jerusalem as quickly as possible, and it tells us in Acts chapter 20 the reason, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time there, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. So he wanted to celebrate that Jewish feast in the city of Jerusalem. Paul said this so he's not against being a Jew even as a Christian. Romans chapter 14, Paul said this. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days to be the same. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains a stains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to him. So Paul's point there, you can read the context of it, but point, Paul's point there is this. He didn't have a problem with Jewish Christians who wanted to continue to observe Jewish customs and in some cases even the laws. Again, just as long as they didn't think that keeping those things made them more righteous or made them more spiritual than the person who didn't keep those things. And so there's this rumor out there of what Paul has been doing, but Paul wasn't telling Christians of Jewish background that they had to stop being Jewish, despite the fact that that's what was reported. And so James's idea for Paul was in a very public way, in the temple where everyone would be able to see it or anyone that was interested, for Paul in a very public way to show his support for the customs and practices of the first century Jewish culture, specifically, as we see in the verse, to pay the expenses of four Jewish Christian men uh, that had taken a vow and to pay the expenses. You can see in verse 23, do, for, do what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads, which was part of the vow. And so, like Paul's vow that I mentioned from chapter 18, these guys are probably also under a Nazarite vow as well. Now, the Nazarite vow, the word sounds similar to Nazarene or Nazareth. It actually has nothing to do with the city or that particular town. The word uh, Nazar, it's this idea of consecration. That's the root of the idea or the word. So the Nazarite vow was a vow of both thanksgiving and a vow of consecration. And so it was a vow that was meant to declare. If you took it, it was meant to declare this. God, you have been so good to me, I want to dedicate myself in a fresh way to you. That's the Nazarite vow. Does anybody have a problem with that mindset or that attitude? God, you've been so good to me, I want to dedicate myself in a fresh way back to you. No, I can't imagine any of us do. Now, the keeping of this vow involved the shaving of one's head. We saw that a few times already, both at the beginning and at the end of the time of consecration. And so you take the vow on day one, you would shave your head, and then all the hair that grows during the timing of your vow, you would shave it again and and send that off as an offering or give that as an offering. It also included the presentation of various offerings at the temple for sacrifice. So the shaving of the head and the presentation, presentation of some offerings. Now, if you look at verse 24, mention is made there of the payment of the expenses of keeping that vow. Numbers, the book of Numbers, Numbers is in the Old Testament. It's During the time of Moses, he wrote... Uh, Those particular books. And during that time of Moses, we have in Numbers chapter 6 how one would go about fulfilling this vow. We're going to look at a little bit of it. So, the first verse in verse 13 of that chapter, it says, Now this is the law for the Nazarite. When the time of his separation has been completed, remember he consecrated himself, that's the idea of separated himself. When that has been completed, He shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, remember, in the early portion of the Old Testament, what was called the tent of meeting in the latter portion of the Old Testament became known as the temple. All right, When it became a permanent structure, that's the temple. And so it's describing this here, the tent of meeting. And he shall bring his gift to the Lord. And here's the gift. One male lamb, a year old, without blemish, for a burnt offering one ewe lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a sin offering, one ram, without blemish, as a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and their grain offering and their drink offerings. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burn offering, And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord with the basket of the unleavened bread. And the priest shall also offer its grain offering and its drink offering. So notice some of the things here. Verse 14, one male lamb, a year old without blemish, like a shopping list. One male lamb, a year old without blemish for a burnt offering. One ewe lamb, also in verse 14, without blemish as a sin offering. Verse 15, a basket of unleavened bread loaves of fine flour mixed with oil and unleavened leavened wafers smeared with oil and then finally in verse 15 the end of it uh, the grain offering and the drink offering that's a lot of items isn't it and you can imagine all of those have an expense you got to buy the ewe lamb you got to buy the ram you got to buy the basket you know with this in it and that in it all of them have an expense so such a collection of offerings to bring them was beyond the resources of many people. I don't have that much money to go buy all of these animals and all of these things, but I do still want to consecrate myself by this particular vow. And so James's suggestion is that Paul pay the expenses, and, and it was common in the culture. If you were a person in Jerusalem with means, one of the ways that you would uh, serve the Lord would by helping other people that did not have those means be able to keep these vows and stuff. And that's what James is suggestion, suggesting cover the cost uh, for these young men or these other men that are trying to make this vow. Now, as an aside in our passage, again, notice what it says in verse 25 there. It speaks about what they had already decided at the Jerusalem council in chapter 15. He says, as for the Gentiles who believed, we've already given our judgment about them. So this isn't about Gentiles pretending to be Jewish people. This is about Jewish people, Christians, but Jewish people that want to keep their customs and their vows. This isn't about making the Gentiles do these things. Uh, Chapter 15 was about Gentile Christians. Chapter 21 is about Jewish Christians. So, as a Jewish Christian himself, Paul, and seeing no particular problem with this ritual, Again, as long as everyone understands, it doesn't make you more spiritual than someone else because they're not keeping it. And seeing that this is just simply an outward sign of an inward work, does that sound familiar? We use that when we describe baptism. If you come to us and say, I'd like to get baptized, and we say to you, well, why do you want to get baptized? Well, so that I can go to heaven. You don't understand the meaning of baptism. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward work. If you think the washing away of your filth, so to speak, outwardly is going to get you to heaven, you don't have a full understanding of baptism. And so here, if you're going to the temple doing these things because you think they're going to make you more right with God, you're missing the point. You're not understanding. And so as long as these folks understand that this ritual isn't going to make them more spiritual than someone else, Paul's not doesn't have a problem with going down that path. Notice again in verse 26, he decided to take the vow along with them. And so it's not just going to be these four guys, now it's going to be five guys that are going to take this vow of consecration. Now Paul's actions here of going to Jerusalem, going to the temple, and taking these vows, commentators have uh, become divided over as to whether uh, what Paul did is something that should be criticized or whether what Paul did is something that should, so to speak, be supported. Now those that criticize the Apostle Paul say that Paul was playing the hypocrite, that he was agreeing to take this vow and support others in taking this vow, and their argument is that he went too far in an effort to placate the Jews of Jerusalem. And in doing so, was creating this impression that he was a person that was under the law. That's how some people criticize the Apostle Paul for his actions in this chapter. There are commentators that support the Apostle Paul, and they argue that the the Apostle wasn't hypocritical at all. In fact, he was acting according to the principles that he himself established in the book of Romans, of being all things to all men so that by all means Or any means he might say save some. Paul wrote this in, excuse me, 1 Corinthians. I said Romans, 1 Corinthians. He said this, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. And we believe that the book of 1 Corinthians was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, correct? So he wrote this, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Again, we're talking about Jews. To those outside the law would be Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. And so again, Paul is never going to make a Gentile Christian do something like what he is doing here in Acts chapter 21. But if a Jewish Christian wants to do it, so be it. Paul's okay with that. I want to make a a comment about the sacrifices of the Jewish people. It's important to understand that this offering that Paul is presenting, though it included an animal sacrifice, was not in any way for the purpose of atonement or the forgiveness of sin. And so many times when we think about the Jewish sacrifices, we lump them kind of all together and we think of the sacrifice of atonement for the covering of sin. Paul absolutely understood that, the only, that only the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross can atone for sins. Paul knew that. He understood that. He wrote about it. That's how we know about it. All right, so he understood that. The Jews, however, as you may or may not know, they had many, many different sacrifices beside the sacrifice for atonement. Now, I'm using the word atonement. Atonement is a word which means covering. And so when an animal was brought uh, for our sin, that animal's blood can't take away our sin, right? That's why they came back every year and they did it again and again and again. What that animal's blood could do, so to speak, is temporarily cover our sin. This act of faith in which God temporarily allowed it, so to speak, to cover our sin. So the word atonement, it means covering. But not every sacrifice the Jews had was for atonement. The Jews had the burn offering, they had the grain offering, they had something that was known as the drink offering. In addition to those, they had what was called the peace offering, the wave offering, and then also the sin offering. If you want to do a little deeper study, Leviticus chapter 1 through Leviticus chapter 7 covers each one of those different offerings. Now, each offering that the Jews would bring, well, how do I know? Do I bring a sin offering now? Do I bring a peace offering? Do I bring a grain offering? Well, each one of the offerings that the Jew would bring to the tent of meeting or later on to the temple was designed to communicate a different attitude of the heart. Well, what is it you want to communicate to the Lord? Well, like this Nazarite vow, I want to communicate I'm just thankful to God for who he is, and I want to commit myself to him in a fresh way. Sounds to me like you want the Nazarite vow. What did you want to communicate in your offering? That's the type of offering you brought. Are we, are we all together? You're with me. Okay, so not everyone was the big one, which took place once a year by the high priest only on the Day of Atonement. Today we call that Yom Kippur. you right? You have Jewish friends? That's called Yom Kippur. Day of Atonement. One day a year, one person would go in for the sins of the nation, and he would offer uh, that animal. So each offering the Jewish person brought was designed to communicate a different attitude of the heart. And not every sacrifice was a covering for sin. There was only one sacrifice that could do that. And Paul knew even further, there was only one sacrifice that did do that, and that was the cross of Jesus Christ. And so this offering that Paul is agreeing to bring at this time is not about atonement. I don't think Paul would have brought that offering because I do think that would have diluted his message a bit. And so if this sacrifice that Paul and these men were bringing as a part of this vow was meant to communicate that, I don't think he would have done it for himself, and I don't think he would have even partially been been involved for these others. But if this offering was meant to communicate gratitude, god's work in his life or consecration to be more devoted to him then paul was all over that and so again to the jew he became a jew in order that he might win the jews and so as verse 26 says paul took the men he purified himself along with those men and he went into the temple and he began the process of this vow The passage continues, verse 27. Now when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and they laid hands on him and crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and thus they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Verse 30, Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took soldiers and centurions, and he ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune, or tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mob of the people followed him crying out away with him away with him how about that now the duration of this vow that paul had taken in this case it was seven days and so as we read in the opening verse of that little section i read as those seven days were drawing to a close paul goes back to the temple presumably to finish up the various rituals. Here's the offering and so on. No big deal. Get in, do what you got to do, get out of there, and on with your day. However, it became a big deal. And Paul didn't just get in and get out. Rather, he is seized, as it says, by the crowd. And notice, they begin to take steps to kill him. Now remember, as we learned last week, at least one of the motivating factors that Paul had for keeping this vow was to sort of placate the Jews of that community that were insisting that he was, trying, he was teaching to forsake Moses. And unfortunately, some of the very Jews that Paul had been trying to appease, they weren't appeased at all. In fact, they're quite angry, as their actions attest. Luke tells us the reason. Verse 28, we read it. They say, He has even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. I pointed this out last week. Uh, Sometimes uh, Gentiles are called Gentiles. Other times they're called Greeks. When they're called Greeks, it tends to be they are Gentiles that were Greek-speaking, which most of the Gentiles that they would have come in contact with were. And so we're talking about Gentiles. They say he's even brought Gentiles into the temple. Let me give you a little historical. He didn't, by the way, but let me give you some historical context. I'll remind you that the Jewish temple, temple... Uh, was not quite the same as our typical church that we might uh, be thinking of, or a synagogue that we might think of. In those types of buildings, this type of building, you you drive to a place, you come there, you go inside the building, you sit down in a chair, and you participate in service. Whether that's a, a church or a synagogue, that's basically how it goes. Not so with the Jewish temple. The majority of the temple complex, particularly during this time in history, Uh, with Herod's temple here. They call that Herod's temple. The majority of the temple complex was made up of courtyards. And those courtyards, the, the further out you were, they got smaller and smaller and smaller as you got closer to the building proper. We'll call that the actual temple building. And so at the center of the complex was this temple building. And only few people, very few people, could actually go into that building. So we all come into this building. Not so with the temple. Only the priest could go into it. Only on their designated days could they do so. And there was one portion of the temple building that only the high priest could go in. Only one day out of the entire year. So the average folk, you and I, you wouldn't have gone into. We wouldn't have gone into the building itself. Now, just outside of the building was the first courtyard. And that courtyard was for Jewish men and Jewish men only that could go there. Just outside of that was another courtyard, which included Jewish men, but also included Jewish women as well. And just outside of that courtyard was the one that included Jewish men, Jewish women, and Gentiles, male or female, Gentiles could go there. That courtyard is referred to as the court of the Gentiles. So you with me? You got all this in your mind here? In the middle of everything is the temple building, priest only, then a layer that only Jewish men, then another layer, layer of Jewish men and women, and then another layer basically of everybody else, the court of the Gentiles. It was absolutely prohibited for Gentiles to go beyond their designated court. They could go to the court of the Gentiles, and that is it. In fact, there was a carved tablet, or multiple carved tablets have been discovered, historically, uh, archaeologically, written in both uh, the Greek language and in Latin as well, because the Romans would have understood Latin as well. And it roughly says this. It roughly translates to this in English. It says, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and the enclosure, Anyone who is caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. All right, historically, they found these things. It must have been a big sign uh, that says it in multiple languages there. No Gentiles passed this. Now, you remember that the Jewish people have been conquered by whom at this time? The Romans. And the Romans basically took the, uh, the, right, of, the right of capital punishment away from the Jewish people. That's why Jesus died on a cross, which was a Roman means of death, as opposed to by stoning, which was the Jewish means of death. So they took that right away from them. However, as you see here by the little sign that I just read to you, so seriously did the Jewish people take a violation of this order that the Roman government gave them the authority, you can take someone's life if they violate it and desecrate your holy place. That's how seriously they took it. And so when we go back to our particular passage, look again at verse 28. Why are they freaking out on Paul in the way that they are? Because verse 28 says this is what they thought he did. He even brought a Gentile into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now the reality is that Paul hadn't done that at all. But this whole thing was a case of mistaken identity. They saw Paul previously wandering around with a guy that one way or another was clearly a Gentile and they assumed it was the same guy that he was now bringing in to this area. Now I remember part of the vow was the shaving of the heads and I don't know, if you've ever been around a bunch of people with their heads shaved you're kind of like my son he was in the army and we went to his graduation they all had their heads shaved and I'm like, I Think that's our kid Robin you know whatever because you know you're a little bit further away and they all look alike in their green outfits and and all that green outfits I probably get in trouble for that uh, but anyhow you know you shave your head and, and everyone looks pretty similar uh, there and so they concluded uh, he must have violated it and so believing that he had violated that law it makes a little more sense that they would respond in this way and so verse 30 and following it goes on to say they seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple and they begin to make plans. They they began to make plans to kill him. You can imagine the commotion in the city. Try to, at the very least, imagine the commotion in the city and the screaming and the yelling and the crowds and the mobs and people being jostled and people running to find out what's going on. Verse 31 tells us that all Jerusalem was in confusion. It was a mess. Now, there were things that the Romans allowed related to the Jews in Israel and Jerusalem in particular. There were things they allowed. There was one thing that they did not allow, and that was public disorder. And they would crack down on public disorder quickly and harshly. And so the noise of the mob rose uh, from this crowd, uh, this mob, and it grew. And the tribune, as it says in verse uh, 31 and following, immediately jumps into action. In verse 31, we have reference to him. The tribune of the cohort. If you're reading the King James, it says the captain of the band. All right. I I kept thinking of captain and Tennille. I don't know why, but uh, the captain of the band. If you're reading the new King James, uh, maybe a little more in a way that we might understand, the commander of the garrison. ESV says the Tribune of the Cohort. A Tribune, the Tribune, was a Roman military official. A Roman military official, that was his particular title. In this case, this Roman military official was stationed to the Temple Mount area. The Cohort was a group of soldiers, and it typically numbered about 500 or 600 people that were under the Tribune's command. That represents a tenth part of a legion in the Roman army. There's a lot of soldiers here around the area of the Temple Mount. And so as soon as this 10th part of a legion became aware of the commotion, as we see, they spring into action. Verse 32, it says they at once took soldiers and centurions. So a tribune would have been over about 600 people. A centurion was a guy that was over 100 people. And so the soldiers and the centurions, they ran down to them and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they being the Jews, they stopped beating Paul. And wisely, uh, they did so. Because, again, what did, the, what did the Romans not allow? Public disorder. You do know, a lot of things. You can say things, go do that over there. I don't care about that. No public disorder. And that's exactly what is going on here. And so the tribune's plan then to quell this commotion is we'll just arrest Paul. We'll get him out of here. And then we'll figure things out when we get to a quieter place. Verse 33, the tribune came up, arrested him, ordered him to be bound with two chains. And then in an quieter place, verse 33, he inquired who he was and what he had done. Who are you and what have you done? I haven't done anything. Well, you must have done something. If the people are beating you in the way that they're beating you, if they're talking about wanting to kill you the way they're talking about wanting to kill you, you must have done something. Now, the Romans here coming in and rescuing Paul, they weren't for Paul. They weren't for Paul. They weren't against Paul. What they were for was public order. And by arresting Paul and getting him out of this crowd, the public uproar likely will dissipate. And so his plan then is to get Paul to that quieter place so he can talk to him. Now, if we look at verse 34, it seems like at least a good portion of the crowd, maybe some of the leaders of those Jews that were beating Paul, it looks like they followed along. Look at verse 34. Now, some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another, and since the tribune could not learn the facts, he said, all right, we got to get you even out of here. Get him into the barracks where only the Roman soldiers are going to be able to go. I noticed this about, notice the mob. I don't even know why they're there. Some are yelling this, some are yelling that. Nobody really even knows what we're doing here, but we're yelling and beating people and they're gathering to do so. That's the mob spirit. And whether it's streets of Washington, DC, or some big city, or it's on Twitter, And the mob goes crazy on Instagram or Facebook and all of that and everybody gets swept up in it and what's the new picture I got to put on my profile because that's what everyone's telling me I got to do. You get swept up in these things. Think for yourself. If these people would have thought for themselves, then they can make the right and you want to do it afterwards? Great! Do it afterwards. But think for yourself. Don't just get swept up with the mob and where it's going. And so if the Tribune here. If he's going to get at the heart of what this is all about, he's got to get Paul off the streets. Again, in verse 34, he orders him to be brought back into the barracks. It says there were so many people pressing in. They had like the Secret Service. They had to pick up Paul and kind of carry him out of that place. Verse 35 um, says it because of the violence. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Now, as I was considering this, I was trying to imagine what might have been going through the apostle Paul's mind as all this was going on. And I have to imagine he thought about Agabus's acted out prophecy. We looked at that, I think it was last week, maybe two weeks ago. And you recall that Agabus was a prophet who came to the apostle Paul, took the apostle Paul's belt off of him, wrapped it around his own hands, and he said the same thing's going to happen to the owner of this belt when he goes to Jerusalem. That's Acts chapter 21. I couldn't help but think that what was going on through Paul's mind was the many predictions that people were giving him. You remember? As he made his way to Jerusalem, as he was hopscotching through all those cities, kind of like a bus stop picking people up, we read this. In Acts 21, 22, now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, Paul said, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what's going to happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me when I get to Jerusalem. I imagine that comes flooding into his thinking at this time. If it were me, I suspect Paul would or did begin wondering if he had made a big mistake by coming to Jerusalem. You remember all the people saying, Paul, don't go, don't go, don't go. And Paul says, stop telling me not to go. I'm going. And now he's there, and he's being arrested, and people are yelling, kill him, kill him. And there's a part of me that might be thinking, I should have never come here. I thought I knew what the Lord wanted me to do. I thought I was going to be okay. I guess I said I'm ready to die for him, but I'm not quite sure anymore if I want to die this particular way for him. That, that's me. Paul's a little more spiritual than I am. I imagine many of you are like me uh, in this instance here. You have grand plans when you're sitting back at your desk, and then when you get out there, you get a little more nervous. Anyhow, if I, I hope you're not disappointed with me. I'm just keeping it real. Um, so anyway, the mob begins to call for his death. And in that, I wonder if Paul remembers back to earlier in the book of Acts. you remember in Acts chapter 7? In Acts chapter 8, when a mob of Jews killed a young man named Stephen. And you remember who was on the other side of those stones, throwing them at Stephen? Paul. Back then he was known as Saul. And it says this, But they cried out with a loud voice, they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at Stephen. And then they cast him out of the city, and they killed him, they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man, named Saul. And again, I explained it then. That means Saul had sort of the authority to tell these guys, you can go ahead and do so, because Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. So Paul wasn't just watching the coats, he was authorizing the action. And now as Paul himself is about to be killed, or at least it seems that way, I wonder if Paul is remembering back to the time that he oversaw a person being killed because of his Christian faith. And I wonder if Paul began to think, you know what, I guess I'm getting what I deserved for all of those years. And even though Paul was forgiven for that sin, sometimes the thoughts come back in, don't they? And you begin to wonder, was I I really forgiven? You know, is God just getting me? Is it even, is this some karma weird thing that people use that term and throw that around? And so I wonder if that's what's going on. And maybe even... Look at those words there in the verse that they said, away with him, away with him. Does that sound familiar? We just finished up Good Friday services here. That's exactly what they said about Jesus. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And we know that Paul was familiar with those interactions And so who knows what exactly was going through Paul's mind. What we can see is this. Look at verse 37. Paul didn't lose his wits. He still had the ability to think here, which I think is remarkable. And so it picks up in 37. It says, now as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And the tribune said, you know Greek? He said, 'Aren't aren't you the Egyptian? then who recently stirred up a revolt and led four thousand men of the assassins out into the wilderness and paul replied no i'm a jew from tarsus in cilicia a citizen of no obscure city and i beg you permit me to speak to these people and when the tribune had given paul permission he standing on the steps motioned with his hands to the people or hand to the people and when there was a great hush he addressed them in the Hebrew language, and he went on and he said. So in this commotion, somehow Paul is able to get word to or to, to this tribune. Verse 37, it tells us that, and the tribune hears the language that Paul uses. Now, Paul was a very educated man, a wise man, uh, so he knew multiple languages there, not just the Hebrew language, but he knew the Greek language. In fact, he grew up in a city where that would have probably been Uh, his primary language, or at least his primary public language. And so the Tribune says, you know Greek? And then notice he adds here, aren't you the Egyptian guy who led a revolt a little while back? Now again, the year that we think this is occurring is the year 57 AD. There was a revolt in Jerusalem in 54 AD, which was led by this Egyptian fellow who came to the Temple Mount, tried to gather up thousands of people. And he did. He had like a gathering. Josephus, the historian, writes about this, had a gathering of about 4,000 people. That's pretty big. And then they got chased out of the city by the Romans, the soldiers. Uh, and most of them were captured, as the passage says here. But he got away, this guy. And he went over the Mount of Olives, out into the, the wilderness, into the desert area. And so the Tribune guy, again, everyone's head a shade, you could be anybody, uh, He says, aren't you the Egyptian guy? And Paul's like, no, I'm not the Egyptian guy. I'm a Jew from Tarsus. Now, that may not mean anything to you, but Tarsus was a very educated city. This would be someone saying, like, well, I'm, no, I'm from Princeton. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I'll get excited. I don't go to Princeton. You know, I'm just from that community or whatever. But it would sound really impressive. And so he says to him, Paul says to them in his, like, very proper English language, I'm sorry, uh, Greek language, he says to him with all the right words, I beg you, pardon me, sir, I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. And the guy's like, oh, all right, cool, I thought you were a terrorist, but I see you're an educated fellow, sounds good. He wants to talk to the people. We'll read it next week, I don't wanna ruin it for you. And so I've been saying this more and more, I, I feel like I'm gonna get in trouble, don't read ahead because I don't want you to ruin the story for you. I want you to come in and be like, wow, this is such a cool story. All right? And if you read ahead, then you'll ruin the surprise. Um, but I'll give you a little hint. Paul's going to preach the gospel to these people, okay? So here we are at this moment in time when Paul's life is in danger from being taken by an angry mob of people where he is considered a dangerous criminal and all these things. What Paul has on his mind is this thought I need to explain the gospel to these people. Two things amaze me about that. Number one, that he was able to think clearly in the midst of this whole situation. And number two, that he cared enough about these people that he wanted to explain to them how they might have their sins forgiven. Again, if I put myself in Paul's place, and if I found myself there, or if you found yourself there in that circumstance, would you be able to think clearly enough to speak? Maybe you would. Perhaps you wouldn't. If I could, I think my message would have been more on the lines of explaining myself than explaining the gospel. Rather than me saying, presenting to them how they can have their sins forgiven, I would have been thinking things like this. I didn't do anything wrong. And let me explain, let me tell the people how I didn't do anything wrong. Or that guy is not even the guy you think he is. You people are making the mistake. Or sometimes this comes to mind. You're all a bunch of jerks. And you messed with the wrong guy this time or something like that. It's amazing that Paul could think and speak so clearly. Considering that he had just been beaten by this mob. And yet he requests to address the mob. And more amazing than that, I think miraculous. Look at verse 40. The mob actually stops and listens to him. Verse 40. Now when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand, and then a great hush fell over the crowd. Paul turned to speak. He waves his hand. He gets their attention. What a dramatic moment this was. Paul, standing there in one of the massive courtyards of the temple, over near the left side there where the Romans would have had their barracks, motions with his hands, And the people actually stopped to listen to him. And so with a great hush coming over the crowd, Paul begins to address these Jewish people in the Hebrew language. And you'll have to come back next week to find out what he says. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Father, we... uh, we look at a passage like this which has certainly a lot of historical information for us it's just explaining some of the things that went down and i I believe it's more it's not just to get us to the next chapter to hear what the apostle says but Lord, as we observe the apostle we apostle we see his heart we we see his actions the way that he responds to these things and i believe you have something for us in those things lord And so, Lord, you know the circumstances we face. You know the the way that those circumstances impact us and who we are and how we're thinking and how we're responding. You know our tendency to kind of look at our past sins and forget about your grace and your cleansing and your perfect washing and yet think we're guilty and God is punishing us somehow. Lord, I pray that you would take those types of thinking Just get them out of our memory bank and instead replace them with the reality that if we confess our sins, you're faithful, you're just. You'll forgive us of those sins and you will cleanse us from that unrighteousness. Lord, I pray you would give us a heart like Paul that cares more about other people's eternal well-being than even his own temporal well-being. Lord, that's, a, uh, that's an attitude of the heart that is very different than what I think anyone in this room naturally possesses. And so, Lord, we ask that you would create that heart within each one of us. So, Lord, bless your word today. May the seed of your word enter into the soil of our hearts and may it bear much fruit for many, many years to come, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.